I've been teaching and preaching a series called Judging God. From the outset, one could almost react and say, who are we to judge God? We judge everything. And by judging, I mean we size things up. We measure, we take pictures of, we compare those pictures in our mind. We, we're making judgments. We meet a new person and we're immediately finding where we can assimilate them or compare them to, to other friends or family members. Is this a person I could put in the trust category or put them in a category of watch your P's and Q's around them? And so we're judging all the time. This sermon series, the, the essence of the title, came from the fact that in Hebrews 11, it talks about the end result of Sarah's journey with God, Abraham and Sarah. God had promised them a son. Sarah had been barren all of her life, and now both she and her man were really old. And... Uh, <clears throat> God showed up on the scene and yet again promised that they would have a son. And Sarah went from laughing in her tent. The chapter before she laughed in her tent, she said to her husband, she, she said, God has decided not to give me a child. She made a judgment about God. She wasn't judging God as condemning him to hell, but she made a judgment about him as a person. In fact, she made a judgment about his character because God was the one who promised they would have a son. Then Sarah, at some point, makes a judgment and says, it's God who's not letting me have a son. So she's judging him who promised to be unfaithful, to be an exaggerator, to be a liar. The following chapter, three men show up representing God, and they said, Sarah will have a child this time next year. Sarah laughs in her tent, and one of the men says, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah says, I didn't laugh. And the Bible says, because she was afraid of God. She judged God again as a meanie, as someone who is harsh. The Bible says that if we're going to please God, we must have faith. And the faith must consist of two things. One, we believe that God is. And secondly, what is it that you believe about the character of God? That God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so here, Sarah, attributing to God, she makes a judgment. This guy made a promise, but you know what? He's the one who doesn't want me to get pregnant. And what we don't realize is that oftentimes we make statements about our lot in life, and it's a judgment about God because God has made promises in his word. And when we're not experiencing those promises, we come to conclusions, but they, are, they end up being, sometimes we don't always recognize we're doing this, a judgment about the promise of God or the character of God. God made a promise, but we're making a judgment. Well, that doesn't apply to me. God loves Paul more than he loves me. And God loves Mary more than he loves me. He'll do it for them, but he won't do it for me. I believe God can do miracles, but not necessarily for me. It isn't going to happen for me. And so whether we like the concept of judging God or not, the reality is we size God up all the time. I mean... Uh, <clears throat> We check people out and we're sizing them up. 
Can I trust them? <laughs> are they going to be an enemy or are they going to be an ally? And we do this with God. And so this whole series is about the fact that in Hebrews 11, it talks about the end of Sarah's journey. Now, this is also brought up in the story in Genesis. A year later, Sarah gives birth, and when she holds this baby up, she says, I will call him Isaac, meaning laughter. Because anyone who hears and sees my story will laugh with me about what God has done. Not a laughing at, but a laughing with. Sarah had a change of heart and a change of mindset. Her perception of God changed. The whole purpose of this sermon series is to take you from believing that there is a God and to take you from believing that God can do anything to a place where you believe God will do everything written in the Word for you. Do you see the difference? And uh, so in Hebrews 11 it says, Sarah received power in the Greek. That word power is supernatural, miraculous ability. The Greek word is dunamis. Sarah received dunamis. She received supernatural, miraculous ability. How many of you want to receive supernatural, miraculous ability from God every time you need a miracle? All right, now watch what she did. Therefore, Sarah received dunamis, supernatural, miraculous ability, because she judged him who promised faithful. We make judgments all the time. I met my buddy over here wearing his red bandana at uh, Lobster Haven. A fellow Italian, I didn't know him, and immediately I'm sizing him up. He looked rough and tough, and then I, as I got to talk to him and realized he was a paisano, I realized that he was as soft and as emotional as I am. When we realized that we both came from the same fatherland, we almost cried in each other's arms. <laughs> I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but we size people up, and oftentimes we size people up incorrectly. We judge according to the outward appearance God sizes us up, but he sizes us up according to our potential in Jesus Christ. Can I get an agreement? Yeah. The devil gets me on a regular basis. He tries to make me and sometimes succeeds in getting me to size up my life to bring a summation of what have I accomplished by looking at my failures or my performance. Whereas God sizes me up by who I'm called to be, who I'm destined to be, and who I am in Jesus Christ. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Amen. So, in keeping with that, Stephen last week preached on praise as a platform to step into God. 
praise in the midst of adversity helps us to realize to refocus on God. It helps us to refocus on God. And in the midst of adversity, praise is a judgment about God. When things are going wrong, when Jehoshaphat had all these armies coming against him, they went out and praised, and what was it? It was a judgment about God. Though three nations that are bigger than us have joined together to come against us, we're going to praise God. It's a judgment. Learn how to praise God in adversity. Because when you praise God in adversity, it is a platform into the miraculous because you are making a judgment about the God who will not abandon you and about the God who is bigger than the three enemies who are coming against you. Amen. So this morning, I want to ask you a question. What are you projecting? That's the title of my message. What are you projecting? We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 26, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 28 and then look at verse 31. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over the wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. Stop. Right from that passage, I could see that God's intention for mankind was not that we would be subdued, not that we would be inferior, not that we would be slaves, but that we would be representatives of God and we would rule with power and with authority. God's intention for humanity was not to have a yoke of bondage and weakness shackled around our legs, but God's intention for man was that he would reflect the greatness of who God is on the earth. God hasn't changed his purpose and he hasn't changed his mind. Though we are faithless, he is faithful. Though we blew it, the first Adam threw it all away, God didn't change his plan. God didn't change his intention. In fact, God's intention and God's plans are eternal. He is not subject to circumstances and our bad decisions don't throw God off his game. So if we keep reading, it says, so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female. He created them in his image. Women, you don't have to strive to be equal. If some bozo next to you doesn't know you're equal, when you stoop down to fight him and prove it to him, you've just come down to their level. God put a statement on your life and your worth, and God created both man and woman in his image and in his likeness to rule. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then if we skip forward a couple of verses, verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. What I love about this passage of Scripture is that when God created humanity, he was projecting the image of himself onto mankind. He created them in his image. He said, I will see them as extensions of who I am. And God projected his image and he carved them out and he made them in the projection of who he is. And so he rightly stood back and said, it is good. In the original creation of man, God projected who he is into that creation. Now the first Adam failed and he blew it. He surrendered his rights to be in the image of God. He became subservient to Lucifer, a fallen angel. And what you submit to, you become like. If you submit yourself to constantly listening to racist comments, you will become like that. If you submit yourself to constantly partaking in stingy, belittling uh, uh uh, activities and behavior and you hang out with people that are stingy and belittling, you will become like that. The image you behold is the image you will manifest. And so when Adam and Eve fell, God, years later, came to earth as the last Adam and he said that if anyone is in Christ Jesus, look at this, 2 Corinthians, in fact, before we go there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 24. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Watch this. Here's Adam and Eve, and all of humanity was meant to be in the image of God. They fall, they ditch their destiny, and they end up becoming this fallen creature under the tyranny of Satan and demonic strongholds. And God wept all through history, and he said, the time has come. He enters earth in the form of a man called Jesus Christ. God became flesh. There wasn't a man, Jesus, and then God came into him. God became flesh to be the last Adam, to redeem mankind from the curse of servitude and brokenness. And God in heaven, God the Father, allowed God as a son to go to the cross, and according to the scripture, Christ, who knew no sin, became sin. So what did God do? He took the brokenness of who you were, and now he projected that onto Christ. 
The one who knew no sin became the projection of our sins because God didn't want to have to look at us and see sin. He wants to see the projection of his original purpose and destiny. And so he takes his son and he says, we're going to trade places. He becomes flesh. He goes on the cross and becomes sin so that the projection of everything you've ever done wrong is projected onto the image of the son of God. He who knew no sin became sin. Watch this so that you and I might become the projection of his righteousness. Wow. Wow. So what God was doing in the first creation, he is doing in the new creation in redemption. He is taking man and redeeming him. Every man who believes in Christ and accepts Christ as his Lord and Savior is washed in the blood and the projection of all of your sins and failures are put on the cross and put to death and then everything Jesus is is projected onto you and me wow so in Genesis God chose to project who he is onto us so that we could be like him and even after our massive failures God visits earth again determined to wipe it away and still project everything he is onto us. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 24. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the projection of the righteousness of God. Well, several verses before that, Seven verses before that, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has come and the new is here. Every one of us that accept, when we ask Jesus into our heart, we are born again. The first time I was born under the curse and under a shadow of darkness and slavery. But when you get saved, when you ask Jesus Christ into your heart, God is redeeming his initial purpose, his destiny, his intention. You are meant to be the head and not the tail. You are meant to be like your father. He wants you to look like him, smell like him, walk like him, and talk like him. And so the Bible says if anyone is in Christ today, if you've never asked Jesus Christ into your heart, I pray that by the end of this service, you will ask him into your heart so that you could have a second chance at life. Be born again, but this time not under the curse, but into the fullness of the projection of your destiny, into the fullness of the image of who God is. Pretty awesome. In fact, what's really awesome is that this projection is so powerful 
that demons try to sit on my shoulder and on a regular basis and they sit on your shoulder and they try to project another image. And they try to project an image of failure, of insecurity, of abandonment. And they will go through the garbage dump of things from your past and they will bring up memories of rejection. They will bring up memories of insults and hurts, words that broke your spirit and broke your bones. And they will talk to you because they want to project another image. You and I have a choice every day. Are we going to walk in the projection of what God has projected? Or are we going to walk in the projection of what demons are projecting? Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says, It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, it is a projection on me right now. Right now, God's looking at me and he sees nothing but Jesus Christ. He doesn't see my weakness. He doesn't see my failures. He sees all of my potential. He sees who I am in Christ. And God projects. In fact, God will never look at you without that projection. So much so that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, he says, Therefore, we will regard no man... All right, he's talking to the church. He says, we won't regard anyone who is in Christ as who they are in the flesh. But we will only project a vision of them as who they are in Jesus Christ. Wow. That is powerful stuff. So powerful that demons will work in your head 24-7 to get you to see a different projection. I preach, and I'm preaching this so that you make a correct projection, that you recognize the false projection and recognize what God says about you so that you are projecting the same image of you overlaid with Jesus Christ. It's amazing to me that it was God's intention to project his image on us in the beginning, and it's God's intention to project his image on us after we get born again. In fact, when you look at how God talks about his kids, you and me, God will never see us without the projection of himself over us. God will always look at you as if he's looking in the mirror of Jesus Christ. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? You know... The Bible talks about the fact that we're married to Christ. God carries that to the nth degree. We know God believes in marriage. So God will never see you without Jesus. Because you're married. You're one. You see, every concept in the Word of God flows. Everything connects. All of the imagery has come from the same author. And so everything ties together all the time. You are so married to Christ and marriage is about becoming one that God can't see you without seeing Jesus. Isn't it amazing 
that we allow the devil to make us step out of that marriage and he gets us to see us without Jesus. So if God isn't faithless to this marriage, why are we faithless to this marriage? See, we think of faithless only in terms of performance. But we become faithless in terms of perception. When we see ourselves as weak, we see ourselves without our married partner. When we see ourselves as insignificant, we see ourselves without the image of God. God refuses to see us without himself. And if God will maintain that projection, who are we to not echo that projection? Can I get an agreement? I want you to see something here. <clears throat> what image are you projecting on a God? We're going to deviate for a second. It's going to look like I'm going off tracks. In the Old English, the word worship was spelled like this. Two different variations. And it was understood that it was the acknowledgement that someone or something is full of worth. In, not in the contemporary sense of the word worship because it's changed its definition by usage, by concept. But initially, worship in its archaic sense, not redundant, but in its old or original sense, worship is giving honor to someone in recognition of their merit and their worth. Worship, let's have that up on the screen. Worship is giving honor to someone in recognition of their merit and worth. So in other words, stay with me, it's going to get real good. And in other words, put the next screen up. When you worship God, you're projecting the greatness and the goodness of God to the forefront of your mind, allowing yourself to become mentally and emotionally filled with that reality. When we worship, it's not about singing. It's about picturing God and singing the greatness of God. We are recalling to the forefront of our mind. We are calling to the forefront of our soul. Mental images, reminders that God is good and that God is great. And as we focus on those images, what you behold, you become. As we focus on those images, the mind mind of the intellect stirs the mind of the emotions and it evokes an expression of adoration. It evokes praise, thanksgiving, and worship. And so worship is projecting God and the greatness of God to the forefront of your mind. So yeah, you can give the Lord a clap. So with that definition of worship, and uh, I have another screen. You might want to take a picture of this screen. Understanding what worship is in the context of what we've just said.
If you don't make time to worship God in the cool of the day, if you don't take time to project the greatness of who God is when everything's going good, you won't have the faith to believe in God in the heat of the battle. That's a very important principle. In fact, I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning wide awake, and that was in my head. And I picked up my phone, and I texted myself, and I repeated what was echoing in my head because I knew the Spirit of God was talking to my spirit during my sleep. If you don't make time to project the goodness and the greatness of God to the forefront of your mind when things are going good, you won't have the faith to believe in God in the heat of the battle. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Now I'm going to give you an example. In Numbers chapter 13, starting with verse 27, Moses sent out 12 spies, a representative of the 12 tribes of Israel men of authority. And he sends them out to spy out the promised land. Stop. Why is it called the promised land? You see, even the concept, the, the phrase promised land, it has taken on a new concept with time based on how we use it. It is slightly different than the origin, how the concept originated. Sometimes we'll equate the promised land with heaven. The promised land as a good place to go to. It's like the promised land. Moses sent the 12 spies out to check out the promised land. Stop thinking of the promised land as a thing and start thinking it as any promise that God might make. You see, it was called the promised land because God promised Abraham he would give him that land. And so whenever they spoke about the land, they called it, yeah, the promised land. The promised land. It became the promised land because it was the land that God promised. And so they referenced it as such. So here are 12 spies going out into the land that God promised they would get. And in Numbers chapter 13, verse 27, they gave Moses this account when they came back. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. What does that mean? They're saying, Moses, just like God told you, this is a rich land. It is a land of opportunity. It is a land that's fertile. It literally flows, literally. It's, a, it, it's an expression. It flows with milk and honey. There's abundance. There's richness. There's fatness in the land. And so they come back, the 12 spies, and they say, wow, this is a good land. How many of you can agree that this definition, this report, they're saying it's a good land? It's a good land. Watch what happens. Here's some of the fruit. They had picked a cluster of grapes and they had to put it on a pole. And two men had to carry the grapes because they were so big. 
Now, I remember when we first went to Australia, I was about nine years old, and uh, my parents went there to work in the church with the new Italian immigrants moving into Australia. And we were amazed, the size of the figs, the size of the fruit, everything. And, and, and so we often refer to it as Canaan, the promised land, because everything was bigger. Everything was just huge and beautiful and tasty. And so I often have that image in my mind when I read this story. And he said, here's the fruit. The grapes were so big that they had to carry a cluster of grapes on a pole. And then they said, now the people that live there are powerful. The cities are fortified and they're large. Now Moses asked him, I want an account. What are the people like? Do they live in fortified cities or not? Are they strong or are they weak? So they're giving an account. The people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and they're large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The descendants of Anak are the descendants of Nephilim giants. We saw some giants. And when you read the whole story, they specify there were some descendants of Anak. In this passage, they say, we saw even the descendants of Anak there. And then they go on. The Amicalites, Amicalites were not giants. They were ordinary people. It was another tribe or culture of people live in the Negev, the Hittites, another culture, they were not giants, the Jebusites, the same, the Amorites, the same, and he says the Jebusites and Amorites, they live up in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. They were not claiming all these people were giants. We saw the descendants of Anak, then we also saw this cultural group. We saw this cultural group. This is where those guys lived. These guys lived up in the hills. These guys lived down by the Jordan River. They're giving a report. So Caleb gets all excited. He was one of the 12 spies. He says, guys, we could do this. We could do this. I know God promised, but we could do this. We just saw the land. You're hearing the report. We could do this. And he starts getting excited. So verse 30, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land. What is the land? It's the land that God promised. Why do I keep emphasizing that? Because there are a lot of promises in the word of God. And every promise in God's word is the land that God promised to you. I am not content as your pastor to just getting you to read the Bible. I want you to see the Bible as the promised land. Everything that's written that is promised is yours. It's yours. Therefore, I have to help you bridge between where you're at in your projection of who you are to where you need to be in your projection of who you are and who God is so that you could go into the promised land and take every promise that is written and not be intimidated by lying demons and giants that are nothing more than shadows that are over-exaggerated. 
So Caleb's getting excited. The promised land, this is the land God promised us. Healing, God promised you. A blessing when you tithe, God promised you. That he would be with you and in the boat in the middle of a storm, God promised you. That nothing shall by any means harm you, God promised you. That's as much as the promised land as the promised land. It was only the promised land because it was a promise that God had given concerning land. God has given you promises in this day and age. This thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but your father has given you promises and there are giants in the land, but what will you project in your mind's eye when you see the giants and you see the promise. Caleb got excited. Come on, come on, what are we waiting for? We could do it. Verse 31. But the man who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report. They didn't spread the truth, they spread a lie. You already heard their report. They spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored and they said, the land we explored devours those who are living in it. It's a lie. That was a lie. They said it's a land of milk and honey. They said it was a land that was rich, it was fertile. They said it was a a place of harvest and bounty and abundance. And now because of the projection in their own eyes of who they are not, they're spreading a message of fear to get people to come into agreement with them. I want to tell you, your inferiority wants to project an image of inferiority and a demon behind that inferiority and a demon behind your rejection wants to project to you who you aren't. And if they can project who you are not, they will keep you from taking hold of the promises of God because of fear, because of giants, because of a wrong projection. And so they spread a negative report. (laughs) Winston Churchill said, A lie will travel halfway around the world before the truth even puts its pants on. They spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored and they said the land we explored devours those living in it. Lie. All the people we saw, all the people we saw there are of great size. Exaggeration, lie. By the way, let me take a moment here. If you tend to exaggerate, deal with it. Because exaggerations are lies. They do not mirror the truth. It is a fear 
out of proportion. Exaggerations are lies. Speak the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Start dealing with the spirit of exaggeration. Fear will exaggerate. Pride will exaggerate. There are many things that will get behind the vice of exaggeration. The bottom line, exaggeration is a vice. Don't be afraid of the truth. You don't need to exaggerate to put value on yourself. God already put value on you. If your exaggeration is going to help you have greater value in somebody else's eyes, you've just devalued God and all of God's projection on your life, and you've settled for a vice that comes from the kingdom of darkness to lift you up. Hang on a second. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I didn't think of that before. That was really good. It says, the land devours everyone living it. <laughs> what stupidity. If the land devoured everyone that was living in it, there'd be no one in the land. Let's go take it. You know what I've learned about fear? Fear is never logical. That statement is not logical. It devours everyone who's in it. Really? Then the place is empty. Let's go. It devours everyone who's in it. Uh, <laughs> All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come down from Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. Stop. Projection. Projection. Isn't it interesting that whenever our truth doesn't line up with God's truth, we're walking in a lie? What does God see when he sees us? He sees Christ in us, the hope of glory. What does God see when he sees us? He sees something that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. What does God see when he sees us? He sees the blood of Jesus Christ and the power and the authority that comes with Jesus Christ. And the devil will always try to get you to project an image about you that doesn't line up with the image that God has already projected in the blood of Jesus Christ. So watch what happens. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. Whoa. The land devours everybody, but there's still people living there. They're not devoured. Everyone's a giant. We felt like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and so we were in their eyes. Stop. This is a land that devours everyone, but the sole survivors are giants. They're the only people that are alive. And we sat down and talked to them and surveyed them and said, by the way, how do we look to you? Fear knows no logic. 
And fear is an exaggeration of things that don't even exist. Are you hearing me? But I want to show you the most important of all these verses that I've just read. The most important. Because we see how the people of God are projecting an image of themselves without God. And they see themselves as grasshoppers. What does God see? If you go to the next chapter, Numbers 14, now God speaks. Numbers 14, verse 11, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the signs I have performed among them. Church, I'm going to hit you between the eyes. Because the word of God needs to shake us back into his reality. Not this world's reality. So I'm going to hit myself between the eyes too. When you see yourself the way the devil says you are. You are projecting that image onto God. Because he created you in his image in the first place. And when you got born again, he recreated you in his image in the second place. So when you agree about that negative image that Satan is projecting, you are also projecting it onto God because you're created in his image. And God took offense. He said, when are they going to stop treating me with contempt? You do not have the right to speak ill of you. You do not have the right to put yourself down. You do not have the right to come into agreement with a demon and invite him into your thought life and let him sit down at your table and drink a cup of coffee with him and break bread with him. Because when we exchange the truth for a lie, we exchange the image of God for an image of less than God. And God took offense. They treat me with contempt. I'm here to tell you this morning that you and I need to see who we are in Christ. Because if we don't see who we are in Christ, we're projecting a fallen image onto our Father. Wow. You see, that's why this series is called Judging God. Because in a lot of ways that we never suspected, we judge God less than He is. Wow. What image are you projecting onto God? How are you judging God? What image do you project? I'm going to end with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, remember, promised land, because it's the land that God promised. Breakthrough, because it's the promise that God said, you'll be the head, not the tail. Deliverance from fear, because God says, I have not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Healing, 
because by his stripes you are already healed? Every one of these promises falls into the same category as the promised land. It was only the promised land because it was land that God had made a promise about. Your health, your well-being, your today and your future is something that God has made promises about. And though the promises of God are many, they are always yes in Christ. In other words, every promise that is written in the book is covered in the blood of Jesus. The Bible says that the blood of, uh, of <clears throat> The blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Cain slaughtered his brother and the blood of Abel cries out for justice. But the blood, and that blood is still speaking according to the word of God. But it says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel speaks condemnation. It speaks uh, of injustice. It cries out for judgment. But the blood of Jesus speaks over us and it speaks redemption. No matter how many promises God has made, the yes is spoken by the blood of Jesus Christ. Every time you read a promise in the word, it is drenched in the living blood of Jesus Christ. And it says, yes, I died for that promise my father made. Next part of the verse. And so through him, Christ, the amen. What does amen mean? That's how it's going to be. It's spoken by us to the glory of God. You see, when we say yes to a promise, I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that. We are projecting an image of God who is able and who is faithful. What are you projecting? No matter how many promises God has made, every promise gets a yes from the blood of Jesus. What are you projecting when you read the word and it's a promise to you and you're in three armies are coming against you? What are you projecting about God? Is he faithful and is he able? Because what you decide in that moment if you can't let praise come out of your mouth, you've just made a judgment about the one who promised. To worship him in the cool of the day is to project to the forefront of your mind pictures of the goodness and the greatness of God. And if you can't worship God in the cool of the day, you won't have faith in God in the heat of the battle. Hebrews 11:6 Without faith it's impossible to please God. Why? Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's a projection. 
If you're going to get something from God, you must believe He exists and you must project the image that He is a rewarder. He is a rewarder. He is a rewarder. He is a rewarder. Isn't it ironic that religion has projected an image of God in a white beard with a two by four? He's always angry. He's always cranky. And He's looking for us to do something wrong. That is not my image of a rewarder. That's the image of a judge. That's the image of someone who wants to punish us. The amazing thing is that even in the Old Testament, God said to Moses, I'm gonna give you the pattern of things that are in heaven. I want you to build everything exactly according to the pattern. And when you get into the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant. There's a cherubim on this side, a cherubim on this side, and a throne, God's seat. And you know what it's called? The mercy seat. Why is it the Old Testament talks about a God who's sitting on a mercy seat and religion has painted a picture of a God who's always sitting on a judgment seat? When you read the book of Revelations right at the very end, for one brief moment in eternity, God gets off the mercy seat and he sits on a judgment seat. And when it's all done, he comes back and he rules from his mercy seat. What are you projecting about God? If you're going to come to him, you've got to believe he is and you've got to expect he's going to do something good. It's all about projection. If God refuses to project an image of you without Jesus, why would we ever project a picture of God without his goodness and his greatness? Come on, let's stand. Praise God. Judging God. We judge Him in ways that we never really realized. And I want to encourage you today in your journey with Him to start making right judgments about God. Sum Him up. But make sure you're projecting a picture of a God who's a rewarder, who makes a lot of promises, and those promises are always yes in Jesus' mouth. And you and I must come into agreement and say amen. What's he saying? God has promised. Jesus covered it in blood to make the promises legal. But now you must project an image of God that says, yes, you must come into agreement. Sarah received supernatural power to conceive seed. Because she went from laughing at God to making a judgment about his character. Faith isn't the issue. Recognizing the character of God is the issue. Because when you understand the heart of God, it's no issue 
to have faith. When you know him, it's easy to know. It's already done. I've got the victory. God is on my side. In Jesus' name. Can I get an agreement? I went up. My brother from Australia came over with his wife to see his kids. And so I went up for a family reunion. My mom's 95. She's had pneumonia three times in the last 18 months, two years. Not a good sign. About eight months ago, she had a heart valve replacement. Within 24 hours, they sent her home. I was leaving last Monday. Sunday, after church, I get a text taking mom to the ER. She has pneumonia. I get up there, and sure enough, she has pneumonia, and everyone, they won't even bring her food in. We have to go to the door. Anyone who comes in the room is wearing a mask. Tuesday, they tell us that she has staph infection in her blood. Well, staph infection can wipe out a, a young person. It'll accumulate around an artificial valve. She has now an implant there. And so they're very concerned that it'll become the breeding place of staph, which is a very serious infection. Wednesday, they tell us she has C. death, which is a bacteria you get in your gut because you've been on a lot of anti-bacteria uh, and it's killed a lot of the good bacteria. And uh, C. death by itself can knock you out. And if you're aged, it could wipe you out. So here's mom with <laughs> pneumonia, staph, C. death, and her hemoglobin had been low for the last eight months, and she's bleeding in her bowel movements. The doctors talked to us and said, look, you guys really need to talk about end-of-life care. Uh, do you want to resuscitate her? It's not looking good. Now, I want you to understand, we come from a, a place of faith. But mom's 95 years old. And God can raise her up. But we don't want to see her hooked up to 100 machines. We've had, we've been blessed. We've had a good life with her. And I know where she's going. And so people ask me, what do I pray? I say pray that when it's her time to go, she'll go to sleep one night and just wake up in his presence. So <clears throat> the doctors asked us, you know, so we, my oldest brother, we decided we'd talk to mom and explain to her that this could be her time. What would she want to do? Does she want to be resuscitated? And so my oldest brother explained it all to her, laid it out, and she just looks at us and says, yeah. And he says, what? You want to be resuscitated? Yeah. So he explains it again. And she says, No. But mom, you just contradicted yourself. And she just looked at us. She wasn't understanding a thing three times. So we made the decision. Paul said, 
it is to my advantage to go, but I stay for your sake. Our attitude is, Mom, forget our sake. We want you to be where we all long to be. So we signed the DNR. The next day, I got a revelation. My mother heard everything we were saying, and she wasn't buying into it. Because every day from day one, she kept saying, God's going to heal me. God's going to heal me. And so what she didn't hear and see or understand when we spoke to her, she must have saw what we did in the spirit because the next day she came back fighting. Thursday, she starts showing all the signs of recovery. And by Tuesday, she was checked out of the hospital and sent to a rehab center to exercise her legs so that she could go home. Why would I tag that on the end of the service? Because at 95 years old, a long time ago, she made a judgment about God. And she has judged him to be faithful, who promised. And all through that hospital stay, I would go with my brother 9.30 in the morning and leave 7.30 at night. That was every day. He's still doing that while he visits her now at the rehab. And, uh, but every day she would confess, Jesus has healed me. I'm going to have a miracle. And while we were okay about letting her go, at 95 years old, she held on to the promise and the one who promised. So I believe she'll go home. And I'm believing that when it's her time, She'll just go to sleep and wake up in Jesus' arms. Amen. But my question is, what are you projecting? What are you projecting about who you are? And what are you projecting about God? God refuses to see a projection of you without Jesus. Judging God. Sarah judged God faithful and received supernatural power. I want you to receive supernatural power every time the enemy huffs and puffs and bluffs. And I want you to know that when you raise your voice, walls come crumbling down. In Jesus' name. If you've never asked Jesus in your heart, raise your hand right now and say, I want to ask Jesus in my heart. If that's you, quickly, before we close, raise your hand. Say, I want Jesus. I want Jesus. I want to ask him in my life if you've never done that. Amen. And turn to somebody, give them a high five, and tell them who you are. I am, whatever your name is, an awesome son of God. Come on, say it. Say who you are. Come on, turn to somebody. I am Cindy, and I am an amazing daughter of God. Amen. I believe you. I believe you. Awesome. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. I trust 
that you will keep making right judgments of God because God has made the right judgment about you. Have an awesome day. God bless you. See you next Sunday.